If anybody, maybe at some point in your life, um, we're dating, falling in love, hard breakup happens, does anybody have like a particular breakup essay that they would like to, that they, maybe you periodically read after a difficult breakup? Does anybody have a breakup essay? Not really. Maybe in high school I played soccer and in college I played rugby and before games I would have something that I, you know, maybe you had an essay that you would like to read before a game to kind of get you pumped up. Does anybody have an essay maybe or a short story you like to read before a sporting event to kind of get you psyched up? Nobody? Okay, here's the reason why. Because everybody's got a breakup song and everybody has pump-up music. But you know what? There are essays about broken relationships and short stories about broken relationships. There are essays about getting motivated and short stories about getting motivated. But genre means something, doesn't it? You listen to music to process your emotions. We all listen to music to process difficult things, work through the emotions to feel them, to have them informed, all that kind of stuff. We listen to music before a soccer game or a rugby match or a football game or a basketball game to get our emotions kind of in line with, how, with what's going on. God understands genre. So he's given us songs to process the emotions of the Christian life. He understands that you don't need an essay, a theological essay on why. We need a song for that. This morning what we're looking at is a song processing Spiritual bitterness. Um, how come following Jesus is hard and not following Jesus is easy? We need a song for that. How come following Jesus is difficult and people who don't follow Jesus have life easy? That's the song he has for us in Psalm 73. We need songs to process emotions, and that's what God's given us. So here is Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they're not in trouble as others are, they're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, as people turn back to them and find no fault in them, and they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, and they increase in riches. And all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. And if I had said, I will speak this way, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you receive me to glory. Whom 
have I in heaven but you. And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you, but for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider the song of your servant, as we consider just processing what it means to try to follow you and the difficulty of it, I pray that we find that you have given us tools in your word by the power of your spirit and in the person of Jesus to figure out this life, to follow you and to find rest in your covenant love. Be with us, dear God. Please teach us, attend to the teaching of your word with the power of your Holy Spirit and break into our hearts. In your name we pray, amen. So that's really the question this morning. And, and I live in Palo Alto. And if there's anywhere in the world that this question is difficult, it's Silicon Valley. And that's the question. How come people who don't care about God, who aren't trying to figure out what it means to trust Jesus, seem to be doing so well? Because they're doing well in our part of the world, aren't they? How come people who don't give a rip about the God of Scripture, how come they're killing it in life? Because maybe you're trying to follow Jesus. I'm trying to follow Jesus, and it's difficult, and it's frustrating, and it's hard. Life seems to be more difficult if you're committed to figuring out what it means to follow Jesus. So we have this Silicon Valley. People are doing well. They don't care who Jesus is. And, and then you have Christians within that group, people trying to figure out what it means to be a Christian and why is life then hard for us and easy for them? And the toughest incarnation of that struggle that's probably in all of us to some degree is this. Is, you know what? I'm, I'm going to follow Jesus in the areas I can find, find it easier to follow him in. But then I'm going to compromise in some aspects of being a Christian because, quite frankly, there's some areas of my life that if I go the world's way, it's just going to be easier and nicer and more pleasant. And so we kind of become this half-man and this half-woman with this line down the middle of our lives where in some areas we're, we're, we're committed to working out that Christian life thing and doing the Jesus thing. And then in some areas of our life, we're like, listen, the world's principles and the world's goals and the world's values, they just have the capacity to make me happier. So we live this bifurcated life, right? Sometimes we're into the Jesus thing and sometimes we're into the world thing. Because it's hard. And that's what this psalm walks us through, is that difficulty. And, and the first two verses kind of set us up. They, the psalmist is reflecting. And it, right before he launches in the difficulty, he says, I know this is true, but it's hard to feel like it's true. That's what the first two verses are. I know that it's true, but it's really hard to feel like it's true. Truly, God is good to Israel, to, the, to those that are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. We know what we're supposed to say and what we're supposed to believe is true. But if we're honest with ourselves, 
it's hard to honestly say that we really feel that truth. We know it's right, but it's hard to feel that it's right. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look in, through this psalm, the path in to kind of spiritual bitterness. The path into that frustrating comparison of, why is it hard for me and easy for them? And then the path out. The path in and the path out. The path in to spiritual bitterness involves two aspects. First, the psalmist Asaph, he begins to look at them. It's comparison. He looks at them and he observes them. I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And the first thing he sees as he looks at them, he says, they don't seem to suffer. Verse 4, they have no pangs till death. Verse 5, they're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Disaster and disappointment doesn't seem to hit them. They don't seem plagued by all the things that people seem to be plagued by. Bad things don't happen to them. They're just cruising through life. Why don't they seem to suffer? Why does it feel like they're immune to the difficult things in life? Why does the job work out for them? How come it was so easy for them to refinance? Why do people love them? Why is it that they're not plagued with the stories that we carry? The failures, the unmet expectations, the opportunities that are wasted, the regrets that we have that stick with us and stick with us and stick with us. Why why is that not part of their experience? I enjoy Facebook. I'm not anti-Facebook. But one of the hardest things about Facebook is this. All anybody puts on Facebook is the good stuff. Is anybody else frustrated by that? Is there any... You're not going to raise hands because nobody actually would raise their hands, but I know you've all felt this. At some point in time, I kind of want to see somebody's bad moments on Facebook. Because all I see is their good moments, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I I start to believe they're only good moments in their lives. You know, I only put the good, the flattering pictures of me on Facebook, which is why I don't have very many pictures on Facebook. But (laughs) Facebook's a little bit hard because everybody advertises their best moments there. And we start to believe that they don't have bad moments. And you see your friends happy without you. You see people succeeding where you're not. It's hard. You see, you see people traveling all around the world on Facebook. That's what's the hardest for me. Everybody seems to be on vacation all the time in amazing places. If Facebook is a window into reality, that seems to be what everybody's experience is. Everybody gets to go to amazing places all the time. That I never go, you know? They don't seem to suffer. Secondly, they're actually even proud about being contemptible, verses 6 through 8. Their pride is their necklace, right? They wear their pride and their success, and they boast. Violence covers them as a garment. It's the thing that they wear on the outside. Their eyes swell through fatness. They're smug. What, what this is, at, at that point in time, the kind of body type you wanted that was uh, attractive was actually to be overweight because that was a sign of wealth and success. And so it doesn't translate to us. What this means, with the way we would read it, is not their eyes swell out through fatness. As we would read, they have a six-pack and they look amazing in their yoga pants. That's what we would read. We'd be like, why don't the girls be thinking like, they look amazing in their yoga pants, and the guys would be thinking like, every time they take their shirt off, it's amazing. Right? How do they do that? It's just, it's broadcast to the world how great their lives are. Financially, physically, emotionally, psychologically, socially, 
even uh, uh, they scoff and they speak with malice loftily, they threaten oppression, they're mean people and they don't care. And not only that, verse 10, therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. Not only that, are they proud, they're killing it in life, they look amazing, they're doing well, but everybody wants to be with them. They're even arrogant and they're proud and they're even oppressive, but we all want to be with them because don't you want to be around those people? We can't stand them, but we want to be them and we want to be near them. That's how confusing this is, right? These are the people we can't stand, but the prospect of not being near them and not being around their influence and in their circle is kind of scary. They mock God even. They set their mouths against the heaven, their tongues strut through the earth. And they say, verse 11, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? They're clear about the fact that they're doing awesome in life and God's a waste of time. And they prosper. They prosper. Everything's working for them. They're getting the bonus, they're getting the job, they're getting the house, they're getting the wife, they're getting the husband, their children are at the amazing school. They've got it all. So we're looking at them, and the hard part about it is then we look at ourselves. I mean, there's two sides to comparison. We look back at ourselves, verse 13. All in vain, in vain, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. And this is what I got in return. All day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. The worst part is looking at that, and you know who these people are. You know who they are in your life. And then you look back at yourself, and you're like, man, every morning day, life is hard for me. Right? Always worried about grades, always worried about money. It never seems like it's secure and easy. Every weekend, every social interaction is a metric on your social life, how acceptable you are, if people like you or don't like you. You know, the, the, you find out when you're left out. The constant notion that everybody's together without you. Even our bodies, right? Your hips, your tummy, your skin, whatever it is, it never quite gets to where you want it to be. Every morning we wake up and we look in the mirror that our body is physically but our lives and we look in that mirror and we're like it's not there yet why can I never seem to get there where these other people are and, and this even this psalm even speaks to the fight to follow Jesus right I'm trying to cultivate character in Christ I'm trying to remain faithful all in vain I feel like I've kept my heart clean Every day, we're waking up and we're struggling against ourselves, and they're not. Isn't that frustrating? Every day, we're going to war against the sin nature in us, calling on Jesus to be there with us as we go to war. How hard is that? How tiring, how exhausting is it to wake up every morning and know that today, my greatest enemy is me? Because you know what? There's a lot of people who wake up every morning and they think, man, the greatest thing in the world is me. And those people seem to be doing well. Why do I have to wake up every morning and fight this fight? All day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. You know who those people are. It's easy to imagine really quickly who they are in our lives, the neighbors, the friends, the coworkers, whatever it is, brothers and sisters, maybe people in this room for some of us, right? They're doing well. And one of the ways we're prone to deal with it, one of the ways I'm certainly prone to deal with it, 
is I then convince myself, well, but I know that they're secretly really unhappy. I know that when they put their head on the pillow at the end of the night, they're crying themselves to sleep. There's just no way they're really happy. It just can't be. I want to convince myself that they're really, really, really deeply unhappy and I just never get to see it. That's not how the psalm deals with it. It doesn't say, hey, by the way, but actually they crowded themselves to sleep every night. Wouldn't that be great if we knew that? We all want to know that. Like, No, they actually go to bed and think like, they're laying on the pillow and they're like, man, I got a six pack. That's awesome. That's how they go to sleep. (laughs) That's how they go to sleep. Wouldn't you, if you had a six pack, you'd be like, yeah, still got it. That's awesome. (laughs) The way the psalm walks through it, it doesn't say, hey, you know what you know, you need to know, you know they're really unhappy when you're not around them. It doesn't give us that. Because they might not be. So what do we do? And, and, and the psalmist even says, verse 16, as he, as he begins to make the turn, he gives us an important verse here. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed wearisome to me. When I thought how to understand this, I realized it was going to be difficult to work through this. And that's a good, sweet verse for God to give us, isn't it? That this isn't easy processing this. It's going to be a difficult task to work through it. We're really going to be working through it all of our lives. God allows you to struggle through this. He recognizes and gives you a prayer. And in the prayer, he says, you need to pray back to me. God, this is going to be hard to struggle through this. He gives you that prayer. So what is the path out? If the path in is that comparison, and we we have our coping strategies that maybe aren't the coping strategies that Psalm 73 gives us, what then is the path out? And the first thing that happens is this. We see that turn in verse 17. I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned therein. Actually, we're going to start earlier. Verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, saying, if I had said, you know what, I'm going their way on this, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. That's actually where the turn begins. Something happens in his mind, and the first thing that happens in the path out is he recognizes that he lives his life among a community. The first thing that happens in in the path out of this kind of just, just nightmare and mystery of comparison and bitterness as he starts to see, hey, my faith is not my own. And as I consider what it means to follow Jesus, and as I consider, and then even tempted to go the world's way on this, because it seems to be easier, my faith is not my own, and my own decisions about following Jesus are not just about me. He begins to see what we all need to begin to see, which is our decisions in life are all social and And they affect everybody else. Because he recognizes, if I leave on this, it is harmful for the community around me. Your faith is not your own. You're fighting to figure out and trust and follow Jesus. It's not your own. And what you choose to do with it doesn't simply affect you. A good friend of mine who passed away a year ago and did not finish well in life Several years into his marriage, he died from cancer a couple years ago, pretty young. About five years before that, he just got tired of his marriage. Pastor, he just got tired of his marriage. And he looked at the world, and he saw in the world that, you know what, when they get tired of their marriage and 
and the spouses don't like each other anymore, they just leave. And that seems to be really nice. So I'm going to do that. Pastor of a church, and you know what happened in this church in the next three years? Marriages started to fall apart. Because his faith is not his own. Your faith is not your own. My faith is not my own. And what we choose to do with our own life in Christ, and what we, whether or not we choose to follow him, has social impact. It affects all of us. And that's the first thing the psalmist realizes. He realizes, whoa, 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 this is not just an internal me and God struggle. I have obligations to the community around me. So the first thing he sees is he sees, like, this is a bigger deal than just me inside of my mind doing business with me and Jesus. This is social. But then, so there's a social context, but then verse 17 again is the turn that we want to kind of camp out on really for the rest of this sermon. It seemed to me a weary task to understand this, verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God and I discerned their end. What is the sanctuary of God? That's where things change for him. All of a sudden everything gets flipped. Now if this movie's a little bit dated now, but it's genius, and I'm sure most of y'all have seen The Matrix at this point, right? In the beginning of the first movie, and again, the, the graphics kind of look dated now because they've done so much more, but the main character is this guy named Neo, and he lives in this world that looks like 21st century United States. And there's something in him that keeps telling him there's more to this, there's more to this, there's more to this. But he's not sure what it means until he meets this other character named Morpheus. And Morpheus tells him, reality is completely different than what you think you see. And he offers Neo a choice. He says, he offers him these two pills in this kind of like amazing moment in this movie, kind of this uh, beautiful kind of existential moment. There's a red pill and there's a blue pill. And he says, you can take the red pill. And if you take the red pill, you'll see the world as it really is. And if you take the blue pill... You'll just go to sleep and you'll wake up the next morning and it'll still look like the illusion that you're believing. And you can just live into that illusion. And he warns him, taking the red pill is going to be hard. Taking the red pill, you're going to see that the world's really, really different and it's going to take a while to process what it's really like. Or you can just take the blue pill and live out the reality you're still seeing and you still believe in, but actually isn't true. The sanctuary is the red pill. Coming into the presence of God, entering into worship, that's the red pill. It's the place where all of a sudden our understanding of the world gets completely turned upside down and we actually see it the way it really is because sin has warped our understanding, our selfishness, our narcissism has warped our understanding of the world. And we need that red pill. We need to come into the sanctuary of God and then all of a sudden we see what things are really like. He corrects our perspective. The sanctuary is the place of worship where God's word have been, would have been read, where singing took place, where prayer took place. All, all the elements of worship then are present now in our worship. And, and what happens is it corrects our perspective on two big things. What's wrong with the world and what's the answer. Because what we're prone to think is wrong with the world, we look at the happy people and we think, I haven't worked hard enough or accumulated enough and I'm not likable enough. And if I can get those things, that's what's really wrong with the world. The big cultural conclusion about what's wrong with the world is education, right? That's the political conclusion about what's wrong with the world. If we can just get everybody educated and get everybody health care, right? 
I'm not making a political comment here. I'm just saying that's kind of what the culture thinks. If everybody gets an education and everybody gets health care, that kind of gets rid of the fall. That's what we think is wrong. And when you enter into the sanctuary, God says, whoa, 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 that's not what's wrong. We enter into the sanctuary, we take that red pill, and he says, the problem's not education, the problem's not health care. The problem's not Democrats, and the problem's not Republicans. It's not that everybody isn't conservative enough, and it's not that everybody isn't liberal enough. He says something very profound. He says, the problem really, the problem with humanity, is actually that we don't love true beauty and virtue. That's the problem which is embodied in the person of Jesus. We don't love goodness and wisdom and kindness and justice and virtue and beauty. That's the problem. We don't even know how to be attracted to real beauty anymore because we're so consumed with ourselves. When you enter into the sanctuary, that's what God's saying. That's what praise does, doesn't it? It redirects. Those songs beforehand were perfect. Praise redirects attention from ourselves back to God. Because the problem is we're so focused in on ourselves, we don't even understand what real beauty is anymore. We don't understand what justice is anymore. We don't even know how to be attracted to it. But he also gives us the solution. So when you enter into the sanctuary, he gives us the real problem. And then he gives us the real solution. Because we're prone to believe, right, the solution is education. The solution is find a spouse. The solution is have a successful startup. The solution is to make a name for yourself. The solution is to feel better because you've done lots of community service. Right? We just think, we have these things, if, if only I could just. We think that's the solution. And Scripture comes along and says, no, no, no. The solution is that something so profoundly beautiful has to happen to you. Be done by another and happen to you, and it has to be so powerful and it has to go so deep inside of you that you can no longer deny its beauty. You have to have an experience of beauty. That's actually what has to happen. That's the solution. Such that you're actually compelled to it. You've experienced it so deeply that you're compelled to it, you're drawn to it, you're taken away with it. And that beauty that has to happen to you is the cross. The self-sacrifice, not just of anybody, but the self-sacrifice of the Son of God, and not just for his friends, but for his enemies. And with no hint of required payment. And with no hint of passive aggressiveness. But simply with the motive of love. One of the hardest theological questions that students ask me all the time when they're really struggling with the gospel, is why then me? And God actually gives us an answer in Deuteronomy. He gives this answer to, to, um, to, to Moses and to God's people. He says, because I promised I would. His motive for dying for his people is simply, because I promised I would love you. And you have to experience the freedom and even the frustration of the fact that he doesn't give you any more explanation than that. And that's how beautiful it is. It's no, no, no. It's just because I covenanted to love my people. You know, experience the beauty of that kind of love. And when the beauty of that experience breaks into our hearts, you, kind of, you can't deny it anymore. And the act of his saving us from the penalty of our sins, in that act, he also draws our hearts to him to where all of a sudden for the first time we start to get attracted to real beauty. And we get attracted to real goodness. And we get drawn 
to real justice and holiness and righteousness because we experience something so beautiful as being loved simply because he wanted to love us. Being forgiven, not because we were his friends, but even when we were his enemies. Worship is the red pill. Worship comes along and says, no, 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 the problem's not education and healthcare and not having enough stuff. The problem is we don't love good things. And the solution is not we need more education and more stuff. The solution is I'm going to demonstrate beauty before you and on your behalf. I'm going to love you. You see, I love everything Young's been saying in worship up to this point. You don't get yourself ready to come into the sanctuary of God. You don't get your life together. You don't get your thinking right. You don't get your head in the right place. The psalmist's head was not in the right place when he walked into worship and sang the song. It wasn't in the right place. You come into worship with your life jacked up. You come into the sanctuary with your thoughts and your fears and your insecurities all over the place, with your questions and with your uncertainties. You're not supposed to get those taken care of before you come. That's the God that says what Young's been saying, come as you are. And let me tell you the story of what's really wrong with the world and how I'm fixing it by grace. And that's the story your soul's been secretly longing for. The story we've all been longing for. This election will not break, make or break this world. And, and, and we love believing that it will. How, how is it that in worship, uh, in the sanctuary, Asaph begins to see the world as it really is? One of the things that happens is he starts to see the reality for these people that we find ourselves in comparison to. He's given, one of the things that God does, another thing God does in worship is he gives us a long perspective on life. That's what happens in verses 17 through 20. Truly I see now you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin, how they're destroyed in a moment, they're swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. He begins to have a longer perspective on life and a longer perspective on the lives of those we always compare ourselves to and we find ourselves jealous of, who don't care at all about the God of Scripture or about Jesus. And what he sees is he gets a glimpse of the life lived apart from God projected out into eternity. That's what he sees. C.S. Lewis has this awesome short fiction work called The Great Divorce, and in it a group of people live in hell and have this chance to take a bus ride up to heaven. And it's really interesting the way C.S. Lewis kind of metaphorically portrays hell, the way he portrays it as a, he portrays it as a suburb in which people are moving further and further apart. And, and the argument he kind of makes, which is a really interesting argument, he says, in hell, everybody gets what they want for themselves. And fundamentally, the probably most fundamental desire people have apart from Christ is to not be annoyed by annoying people and to not be around irritating people. That's our most fundamental desire. And he says, in hell, that's exactly what you get. The problem is everybody irritates us at some point. And in hell, you get to move away from anybody who irritates you. And so the way he uh, kind of visualizes hell is as soon as you get irritated with somebody, you get to be further from them. 
And so hell is people who live by themselves, and he talks about how you stand in the center of it, and you see tiny little lights on the horizon that are far from everybody. He says, that's hell. You get to be away from everybody. Because hell is alienation and separation. It is God giving us the right to no longer be irritated by him and anybody else. And so we're by ourselves. And then they get to go visit heaven. And what they realize when they visit heaven in this book is that in heaven, the reason they're not there is because they loved something else more than God. They love success, they love sexuality, they love their child, they love their lover, they love their riches, they even loved grumbling. They have something that they wrap their lives around and said, I hold on to this, I have to have this above all else, no matter what it costs me. And that's what kept them out of heaven. The Bible sees sin as slavery. Being enslaved to loving something that can't love us back. And hell is being nothing more than permanently consigned to loving things that can't give life. God says, and this is what Paul says in Romans 1, that actually God's judgment is giving people over to their desires. Hell is nothing more than selfishness projected out into eternity. That's the perspective Asaph is given here. He's given that eternal perspective. He begins to see, because it's so hard, right? In the moment, it's really hard to see past the tyranny of the urgent because we just see the people next to us doing well. And God's given us a little bit of an eternal perspective. He's saying, you got to look up for a second. I can see further down the road. And you need to come get this perspective. Uh, I have this permission from Elizabeth to share this illustration. In eighth grade in Jackson, Mississippi, it dawned on Elizabeth she was not going to be a cheerleader. And in Jackson, Mississippi, in eighth grade, for a girl at a, you know, a, a sweet little private school, that's a tough reality. That's a difficult reality. But this is what she had as she's processing that difficult reality. And she saw the cheerleaders next to her. And man, in eighth grade, that's hard. She had a sister in college. And a sister in college is someone that's got longer perspective, who's lived a little bit longer and can see a little bit further. And her sister's like, Elizabeth. Trust me, not making cheerleader in eighth grade is not that big a deal. It's so hard to feel that when you're in the middle of it. But her sister did exactly what Asaph is doing here, exactly what God does for us. They're standing further back, they're standing higher up, and they can see further down the timeline. And they're saying, I can see further. It's going to be okay. It's good news that God gives us perspective. And then lastly... We see that God himself is the treasure. This is the last step out of that bitterness. The solution is not, hey, follow me, and then you're eventually going to get all the stuff you want. It doesn't say that. Notice verses 23 through 26. Nevertheless, what is the sweetness of this? I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? The last step out of bitterness is to see that God himself is the treasure. Six packs aren't the treasure. Cars, houses, even mates and children. They're not the treasure. God himself is the treasure. Whom have I in heaven and you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. How hard is that to say? Oh, it's easy to say in a moment of worship, how hard is that really to say day in, day out? 
my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is not the means to get the life that we want. God is the means and the ends. He is the life that we want. Being near him is the life that we want. He's the mean and the ends. He's saying, I may lose it all, but if I have God, I have everything. I may do poorly at school, but God is my portion. Work may not be what I envision it to be, but God is my portion. My illness may never go away, but God is my portion. I may never marry, but God is my portion. College may not come together the way I anticipated, but God is my portion. If my plans fail, God is my portion. A lot of times we're prone to think that God is only good when we're getting the stuff that we want. And sometimes in his goodness, he keeps us from getting the stuff that we want because it would distract us from seeing and enjoying him. We're still prone to worship stuff and circumstances and not find our life in him. We don't use God to get the life that we want. God is the life that we want, to be with him, to be near him. So how can we be sure that he can really be our portion? Because we're eighth grade girls in Jackson, Mississippi, and it's hard to see past getting cut from the cheerleader squad, right? How can we be sure? Because there's a lot of things to grab hold of that seem like make us happy. Well, more is going on in the sanctuary than simply praise and worship and reading God's scripture. More is happening there when Asaph looks in there and everything starts to change. In that sanctuary, there is an altar. And he's thinking about this and he's seeing this. And something occurred on that altar. Animals were sacrificed on that altar and blood was shed all over that altar. And those sacrifices were signs. They were kind of like sacraments. And they were pointing forward and they were teaching them something. They were teaching them about a lamb that would come that would bear the penalty for our sins so that we don't have to go and lay on that altar. Suffering the wrath for our junk and for our anger and for our selfishness and our vanity and our narcissism and our lack of self-control. That's what Asaph saw on that altar. He saw God providing a lamb in his place. And we see it more clearly now because we don't look at signs that point us forward. We see the one true lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world, Jesus that's why the sacrifices don't take place anymore. But we still look in that altar in the sanctuary. We look at the cross. And we see the Lamb of God. So if you want to know, can I trust God in the midst of the spiritual bitterness, in the midst of this comparison, look at the cross. It was death on our behalf. Do you wonder if God's, if he cares for you? Do you wonder if he's going to give you what you need? Look at the cross. He gave his own son for you. What we're prone to do, what I always do still, is try to come up with a million explanations of why things are the way they are presently. Why why circumstances work for them and not for me. And so sometimes we pray, sometimes I play a little kind of vengeful prediction game, right? They're going to get it and I'm not. Eventually, you know, they just can't be happy. We play our self-righteous game, right? We think of all the different ways, well, they have all that, but here are all the different ways I'm better than. Or we, we throw a pity party because pity's fun. It feels good. We love it. We wallow in it. Or we play our bargaining game. Well, I can give in in these couple of areas because 
and, and I can kind of forego some of the some of Jesus things in these areas because I'm doing so much better in all these other areas. I've earned it. What we've got to do is we've got to take all our struggles to God, all that bitter comparison, all the hardness of following Jesus, all our doubts about the goodness of God, and we hold them in our hands and, and stop pretending that they're not there and stand in front of the cross while we're holding them and ask ourselves, if he did that for me, can I trust that he will be my portion in life as I carry this lot? And if you ask that question at the foot of the cross, the answer is always abundantly clear. It's yes. God's your portion. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you walk us through difficult things. And I pray that you would draw us deeply into scripture and you would press those truths into our hearts, dear God. And we would find that you are our portion, that you are our strength, that you hold on to us, and that it's good to be near to you. In your name we pray. Amen.